Hi, I'm Charles Critchell, and I'm the founder and editor of Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank which aims to advocate that city transport can be more accessible, equitable and sustainable for the users it serves. I'd like to start by welcoming you to our Inside series, where in each episode a guest and I will discuss how COVID-19 has specifically impacted the transport network and urban fabric of a global city, and the ways in which this could develop both during and beyond the current pandemic. Today we're focusing on Paris, the capital city of France and the seventh and last of our global cities. Known as the City of Light, Paris is renowned for its sophistication, charm and culture. It is consistently rated as among the world's most famous and visited cities. It is Europe's densest city and has a population of just over 2.2 million people, while it has historically been at the centre of global commerce, fashion and diplomacy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Marion Lagadic. Marion is an urban planner and geographer who works as a project manager at 6T, a Paris-based research consultancy specialising in urban planning, transportation and mobility, while Marion also studies for a PhD at the University of Oxford. Her thesis is on the gendering of cycling practices in Tokyo. Hi Marion, how are you and can you let us know where you're joining us from? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to speak today. Uh, I'm joining you from my home in Paris, where I was locked down for two months. We are progressively going back to a normal situation, but my firm is still capping the number of employees at the office, so I'm still spending most of my time at home. Can you firstly explain a bit about Paris's geography and the ways in which people navigate the city? Paris is located in the northern central part of France and while the centre of the city which is built around the river Seine is relatively flat, Paris actually counts seven hills, uh, the most famous and highest being Montmartre. It's a very small city compared to other global cities. It only counts 2.2 million residents in the city itself and 11.8 million in the wider metro area. However, it's the densest city in Europe with about 20,000 inhabitants per square kilometres. The city is arranged in 20 arrondissements and is enclosed by a ring road, the Boulevard Périphérique. The city is actually well known for its large boulevards, drawn by Haussmann in between 1850 and 1870. The western part of Paris is very much marked by this heritage, but some neighborhoods, such as the Latin Quarter or the Marais, still display signs of the former medieval city structure. And in the outer ring of arrondissement, further away from the center, some former villages that were absorbed by Paris break away with the global city feel that can be found in the center. Paris is also a major transport hub in terms of railway, highway, and air transport. Uh, the Paris Metro is the second busiest in Europe after Moscow, and it's completed by the RER, the Suburban Railway Network. The Great uh, Paris Express, which will be the suburban metro, is under construction and should be delivered by 2024. And Paris is also a big uh, train hub with all TGV, French fast trains, connecting to Paris. While the center city is well serviced by public transport and quite small, outer suburbs are much more car dependent, the network being much more denser in the core of the metropolis than at its ages. And Paris is also an important hub for the national uh, motorway network. Many shared cycling and micromobility services are also available. Uh, the first one to be launched was Vélib in 2007, the public bike sharing services, and it has since then been complemented by new dockless bike sharing offers, such as Ofo, Mobike, etc., as well as e-scooters and electric mopeds, which are also available. 
Okay, thanks. And if we now look at the pandemic, can you describe the ways in which France has responded to COVID-19 and the measures which are being implemented in Paris? To date, more than 150,000 cases of COVID have been reported in France and close to 30,000 deaths. While the precise number of cases in the greater Paris area is unknown, it was one of the two most hardly hit areas in France with the eastern part of France. The situation escalated in early March and the lockdown was announced on March 17th. Uh, after some days of confusion. The first round of the municipal election was planned to happen on March 14 and was not cancelled. The government declared it was safe to go to the polls, but it entirely changed its discourse on March 15 and encouraged people to socially distance, stay inside of their house as much as possible. So this quick change of tone was quite hard to understand for people, and the lockdown had a bit of a shaky start as many people were questioning it, not respecting it, and still going out on the streets without wearing a mask. When things began to feel a bit more real, 200,000 people actually left Paris to go isolate in another part of France. So Paris was quite empty in addition to being locked down. During the lockdown, we were not allowed to leave our houses for more than one hour a leisure trip per day. We were not allowed to go more than one kilometer away from our house. And for all trips, we had to fit in an official form to state the purpose of the trip, the time when we were leaving the house and where we were supposed to go back. Unjustified trips were punished with a 135 euro fine, so quite high. So only necessary activities were allowed, only grocery shopping, going to the post office or going to the doctor was possible. And this went on up until May 11. In Paris, more specifically, parks were closed to prevent people from gathering in big groups. But this also led to people having their leisure trip, walking around the fences of parks and actually gathering in very dense groups to answer the need for mobility for necessary workers and to go grocery shopping to the doctors, etc. Uh, the Paris City Hall planned 150 kilometers of temporary cycle lanes to be implemented starting May 11th. So far, all of them have not been delivered, but most of them are. So you mentioned a few different measures that have been taken and a very visible measure has been City Hall's decision to allow businesses such as restaurants and bars to erect temporary terraces, which have effectively enabled the instant appropriation of sidewalks and parking spaces for customers. Please, can you tell us a bit about this? Starting from June 2nd, the Paris City Hall allowed terraces to open. And to allow this quick uptake of terrace service, the City Hall eased the procedure for restaurants to create a terrace or extend their terrace. So not only was it made very speedy, it's also temporarily free. Well, it's usually quite expensive to have a, a terrace in Paris. However, starting from yesterday, June 15th, bars and restaurants have been allowed to serve inside, uh, which is a welcome news on the part of restaurant owners because the weather has been quite bad starting from the end of lockdown. So terraces were actually not that busy. On June 22nd, the lockdown will end for good and everything will be back to normal. But restaurants are allowed to keep their temporary terraces up until the end of September. If we now turn to look at how Paris is administered, can you explain the different layers of governance which affect the city and highlight the respective roles each authority has in controlling city transport? First of all, France is a very centralised country. Paris is the seat of the national government and is governed by three main authorities. First, the Paris City Hall at the city level, then the Greater Paris Metropolis uh, in the urban part of the Greater Paris region, and then the Ile-de-France region, uh, which encompasses a much wider area. 
the regional and city level governments are the two key actors. The Ile-de-France region is governed by the regional council, which counts 209 members representing different communes, different cities. It's the most populous of the 18 regions in France and it has its headquarters in the 7th arrondissement of Paris. The city of Paris was only granted municipal autonomy in 1974, with Jacques Chirac, former French president, being also the first elected mayor in 1977. The mayor of Paris is indirectly elected by Parisians, and the current mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has been in office since 2014 and is standing for re-election in 2020. Underneath the mayor, there are some arrondissements, 20 of them, which could be compared to London boroughs, but are actually much less autonomous. The arrondissements are in charge of schools and social housing management, but when it comes to urban planning, they have the right to express an opinion, but the authoritative decision rests with the Paris mayor. A very important distinction to make is that the Ile-de-France region is in charge of public transport. The Paris City Hall is not autonomously managing public transport, the region is. However, the Paris City Hall is in charge of all other uh, mobility matters, so active mobility, shared mobility, etc. As you said, the regional level administration, the Ile-de-France, oversees public transport both within and outside of the city of Paris. Can you explain some of the issues which this causes for those who travel between Paris and its suburbs? Well, first of all, it's uh, important to remind that the Paris metro is one of the oldest in Europe. It opened in 1910. And this old origin creates a certain path dependency. The network is extremely dense in Paris, but much less in the suburbs. And it's shaped like a star with branching connections to the suburbs, but without any loop to connect suburb to suburb. While the Ile-de-France region remains strongly centralized, important economic sub-hubs have developed in the suburbs, and traveling to those from a neighboring suburbs can actually be quite tricky. So the future Greater Paris Express, Grand Paris Express, will extend the network with 68 new rail stations and with new loop lines that will better connect the suburbs to each other. Those should be delivered by the Olympics by 2024. High-profile architects were selected to design the new stations, but so far, there have been discussions regarding the fact that they only provide limited park and ride facilities, connectivity with cycling lanes or bus lanes, leading to fears that the full potential of the network might not be captured. There are also some concerns regarding gentrification around the stations, as some social housing was destroyed and replaced by affordable housing, and people living in social housing were relocated further away, which is a big problem, especially in the Seine-Saint-Denis département. So these impacts have to be monitored in the future. If we now look at the city-level administration, its city hall and the role of the mayor. In 2001, Bertrand Delanoy, the city's first socialist mayor, was elected and began to introduce measures to move Paris away from private car dependency. Can you describe what some of these measures were? Bertrand Delanoé was elected mayor at the head of the Socialist Green and Communist Coalition, and he was the first left-wing mayor to ever govern Paris. He campaigned in favor of reducing pollution and investing in social housing and education. And he soon became known for organizing uh, unusual events in Paris, such as Paris Plage, the Paris Beach that was created on the banks of the River Seine. He actually contributed to reclaiming uh, about two kilometers on the River Seine and turn it into a park, uh, something that Anne Hidalgo, the incumbent mayor, would continue later on. His most famous projects were related to sustainable mobility, as his key goal was to reduce pollution. 
He launched a public call for Tenza for shared bicycle service in 2006. And Vélib, uh, the public bike sharing service that still exists today, was launched in 2007. The innovative aspect of this service was that the bike sharing contract was actually associated to an advertisement contract. Bike sharing was still quite new at the time, so it was a risky investment for operating firms. So advertisement was added as a way to offer steady revenue. The service was progressively extended to the suburbs and in 2018 it had reached 9,000 bicycles and more than 40,000 docking points in 1,200 docking stations. In addition to offering shared bicycles, Bertrand Delanoé also developed car sharing system, Autolib. Autolib was actually the biggest electric car sharing system to develop in Europe. It was launched in 2011, and it was actually the most intensively used car sharing service in Europe up until 2018, when it was terminated due to financial hardships. Working closely alongside Delanoy was Anna Dalgo, Paris's first female mayor and the current holder of the post, whose bid to become re-elected is on hold owing to the suspension of the mayoral elections. Can you explain how Anna Dalgo is building upon the work of the former mayor, and how her approach has been received by Parisians? Anne Hidalgo was appointed first deputy mayor of Paris in 2001, alongside previous mayor Delanoé. Uh, she was elected mayor in 2014, and she actually campaigned to pursue her predecessor's work to make Paris more sustainable. Her strategy has been very much focused on developing cycling in Paris through an extension of Vélib and a doubling of cycle path kilometers. Her very ambitious Plan Vélo, uh, Vélo Plan, aimed at raising the cycling model share to 15% by 2020. Preliminary results from the new travel survey suggest that cycling trips actually increased by 30%, bringing the model share to 4% for commuting trips in 2018, so quite far from the 15% goal. However, since 2018, high-quality bicycle lanes were delivered, uh, and between September 2018 and September 2019, bicycle counts already suggested a 54% increase in bicycle trips. And even after that, the long public transport strike that happened in January and February of 2020, as well as the COVID crisis, of course, might have changed practices a bit further. All in all, Aniago has delivered 300 kilometers of bicycle lanes over her mandate, and she's campaigning to continue this project and redesign all of Paris streets as cyclable by 2024. Anne most famous project to remove cars from Paris was actually the opening of the right bank of the River Seine to pedestrian in 2016. The right-wing regional president, along with opposing mayors, actually sued the Paris City Hall on the ground that the administrative act providing cars from accessing the riverbanks was irregular. There was a strong popular mobilization to protect the new pedestrian space and the city hall actually won an appeal. It's however worth underlining that the exact goal of the project was to discourage trips that would go through Paris, a city that can easily be crossed within sustainable modes. Within Paris, the measure was uh, welcomed with great enthusiasm and the riverbanks were transported into a big park that is busy all year round for now and is also widely used by cyclists to cross the city in a secure way. The mayor has stated that she wants to carry out an ecological transformation of the city, which has included air pollution reduction initiatives such as Paris Respire, in addition to her plans to minimise car dependency. However, owing to Paris's logistical importance, Many motor vehicles are dependent on the city's outer road network. 
Can you therefore explain some of the initiatives which your team developed to minimise the impact of vehicle emissions while keeping the city functional? In addition to Anne Hidalgo's bicycle strategy, City Hall has also made the whole city of Paris into a low emission zone in September 2015. Most polluting vehicles, may they be individual cars or trucks, are forbidden from entering the city. This measure has been questioned on the ground that it might not be socially progressive, given that precarious households overwhelmingly rely on old polluting cars. However, the small-scale and high-density public transport network within Paris ensures many alternatives to car trips. The key issue when it comes to retaining emissions is actually the important difference between Paris and its suburbs. Paris in itself is a tiny city compared to other global cities. It's thus actually quite easy to promote active modes and public transport for those trips that stay within Paris. But when crossing the périphérique Ring Road, both the urban structure and the alternative transport offer changes entirely and many territories remain car dependent. To answer this problem, the Greater Paris Metropolitan Forum, which is an association of local governments that commissions studies on behalf of its members, launched a consultation regarding the future of highways and fast roads in the Ile-de-France region. Four teams were selected to develop a strategy and my firm 60 was among one of those teams and we offered to develop a new shared mobility and public transport network on these fast roads. This network would rely on high occupancy vehicle lanes that would be created on every road in the region so as to connect a network and these lanes could be used both by high occupancy private vehicles by microtransit services, public transport, and having a variety of services allows reliability. The idea would be that using that network, people would know that within five minutes, they can find a carpool, a bus, a shuttle, or anything that would bring them to their destination. Earlier, you described how the Valide project was fundamental to the steady uptake of mass cycling in Paris after it was introduced in 2007. However, during major works to upgrade the Valide network a decade later, the city witnessed a boom in micromobility as dockless bikes and then scooters suddenly populated the city's streets. What was the significance of this period for both Parisians and the city's authorities? Valide had marked the launch of Paris's sustainable mobility strategy and had made cycling visible as a legitimate transport mode, but the public tender expired in 2018 and a new call for tender was launched. Another service operator called Smooth and Go was selected, and this implied changing the technology, changing all docking stations, etc. These works started in autumn of 2017, and the new service launch was planned for January 2018. However, the firm faced important difficulties in delivering its technology, and the new Vélib was actually only launched in May of 2018. And even once it was launched, the technology did not work properly for about an additional month. So all in all, Vélib was no longer a reliable option for more than six months. The new Vélib was thus strongly criticized and lost many disappointed users. And right in that period of time, Chinese dockless bicycle operators, Ofo and Mobike, launched the service in Paris, a very timely launch. However, a study conducted by, by 60 suggested that they did not really capture Vélib users. 52% of daily dockless bike sharing users had actually never used Vélib, and only 6% of dockless bike users had entirely switched from Vélib to dockless bikes. So this suggests that dockless bicycles actually complemented rather than competed with Vélib. One could argue that the dockless nature of the service made it very practical for intermodal trips to stations, metro stations, train stations, for instance. 
actually through a user survey that we conducted at 60, we found that 27% of dockless bike sharing users had rented a bike as part of an intermodal trip. As dockless bikes did not actually capture all of any trips, over that period, 60 also interviewed bicycle sellers to investigate whether they had experienced an increase in sales. And this increase was reported by 30% of bike sellers we interviewed. So both results combined suggest that using Belib actually encouraged some users to move towards owning their own bicycle and one can assume using it more regularly. So it would be very interesting to explore Belib's current use patterns given that after the lockdown, it appears to be very intensively used. Why then do you think that the Valib has enjoyed a resurgence since the easing of the lockdown? And can it entice users away from other forms of micro-mobility? When the pandemic hit and lockdown began, many private operators took their vehicles off the streets. There were several reasons for that. First, managing a shared mobility service during a pandemic is complex and costly, as it would imply systematically disinfecting vehicles, etc. One can also imagine that operators feared that vehicles left on empty streets would be stolen or vandalized. Lockdown has now ended, but we still cannot see many of these vehicles on the streets. Actually, yesterday, June 15th, electric bike sharing operator Jump announced that it was taking its vehicles off the street for an undetermined period of time. To the contrary, Velib is a public service and it is still operational. It was actually free to ride the Velib for up to an hour during lockdown. So the new Velib service is also very attractive because it offers electric bicycles. And one can argue that those people who never cycled before and started out of fear of using public transport in a pandemic period uh, might find it easier to start with an e-bike, which is very easy to use. And at 60, we are currently conducting a study on lockdown and post-lockdown mobility habits, which should be public by early July. And we are looking forward to knowing more about baby use patterns during and after lockdown. If we now turn our attention to electric scooters specifically, what do you think are the key challenges and opportunities surrounding electric scooter use in Paris? Shared electric scooters first appeared in Paris in June of 2018, with operator Lime launching its service. And within a year, there were 15 operators in Paris, so it quickly turned into a very competitive new market. One can argue that geographically, Paris is quite attractive for micromobility services, as it's a very small city. The user surveys that we conducted with LAM users showed that half of trips were actually below 15 minutes and covered less than five kilometers. Given that north to south and east to west, Paris is about 10 kilometers wide, e-scooters can actually be used to cover a good chunk of daily trips. Compared to bigger cities such as London, Paris is well suited to walking, cycling or shared micromobility. At 60, we have also argued that shared e-scooters work well in Paris because public transport is so dense and reliable. Shared e-scooters are not daily modes. Only 6% of users use shared e-scooters every day, and it's also quite expensive to use. So shared e-scooters only work when other day-to-day -day alternative options are available. And in the case of Paris, that would be walking and public transport. Finally, it's worth underlining that shared mobility operators look for densities to launch their service. The higher the population density, the bigger the number of potential users. And in each square kilometers in Paris, there are 20,000 people. So really good prospects. And in addition to that, Paris is a very wealthy city. Almost 30% of inhabitants in some areas work in higher managerial professions. So they can afford to rely on a shared e-scooter service. I also think that it's important to keep in mind that micromobility users are not 
the everyday Parisian. They have a very specific profile. Actually, more than half of e-scooter users in Paris are in the highest professional categories of the French census, 53% of them. And in Paris as a whole, 45% of people are in this highest professional occupation. So Paris as a whole is already not inclusive compared to France. So we are talking about people who are quite wealthy, well-educated, about a third of them have an MSc. So it's not a very inclusive service. And this has to be kept in mind. A service that is so little inclusive shouldn't be the key solution towards sustainable mobility. So you've just explained some of the pros and cons of electric scooter use in Paris. But what lessons do you think that other global cities can learn from Paris's experience? When these shared e-scooter services were launched in France, they were a brand new service. They did not have a proper status. And the legal uh, background in France is that anything that's not prohibited is actually allowed. So this unclear status created some, some problems. First, shared e-scooters were seen as an enhanced pedestrian solution. So people were using them on the sidewalk at quite high speeds, and it was pretty dangerous for pedestrians. The city hall and the government were both quite quick to react to that by restricting speed, prohibiting shared e-scooters on sidewalks, etc. But uh, the first big measure that the city hall launched was a code of conduct that was adopted in May 2019 and all operators had to sign it. This agreement is not legally binding, it only has moral value, but it created a dialogue between the city hall and operators. A year later, in March 2020, the Paris City Hall launched a selection procedures with specific guidelines to respect for micromobility operators. They specifically mentioned in their court contender that the selection would result in a license that would be temporary, revocable, and precarious. So they are stating very clearly that those operators are not necessarily here to stay if they do not respect the new regulation. Operators all had to submit a service proposal, uh, which will then be graded by City Hall. And the criteria for grading are the following. 40% of the grade is based on the proposal environmental responsibility, covering vehicle life cycle impact. 30% of the grade is based on those measures taken to ensure safety. And the remaining 30% are based on maintenance because in initial stages, many shared e-scooter operators were using precarious workers relying on polluting vehicles to collect and charge e-scooters. And City Hall is now very careful about this point. City Hall will also create parking spaces that selected operators will be allowed to use. Other operators are not allowed to use them and they are also not allowed to park vehicles outside of these spaces. So they are prohibited through this mechanism. And operators will also need to put geofencing in place so as to ensure that users cannot leave their vehicle anywhere. The selection process should have ended in April, but the COVID created some delays, obviously, so we should know who will be the next operators in the coming month. I think that what other global cities could learn from the experience of Paris is that regulation is really critical and that properly regulating is not an easy task. Some cities in France actually started by capping fleets uh, because they were afraid of clutter on the sidewalk. But actually the limits that they chose were completely impossible to deal with financially for operators who want to ensure the reliability of their service. So these operators left the city while this was not the initial goal of the local authority. 
This is just an example to say that dialogue between operators and city halls is very important because when these actors do not understand each other, the service cannot work. Looking ahead to the current mayoral election and the incumbent mayor, Anne Hidalgo, is pledged to create a Ville de or 15-minute city, if she is re-elected, a vision which has attracted much domestic and international attention. Can you explain what the 15-minute city is? So the 15-minute city is an initiative from the Paris en Commun campaign group, that is Hidalgo's campaign group. It emphasizes the idea of hyper-proximity, uh, which is that many uses should be combined within a small geographical space, including work, leisure, health, and cultural facilities. This contrast with the orthodox planning protocols of the last century, which aim at geographically separating these uses into dedicated residential, manufacturing, office districts across the city. More local facilities will mean more local trips, which would be more sustainable uh, and also supportive of local economies. Specific examples that have been provided by the campaign group were, for instance, more road space being given over to pedestrians and bikes, but also the promotion of reversible spaces, which could be used for multiple uses, such as daytime schoolyards, which would become nighttime sports facilities, etc. A network of citizen kiosks, uh, which would be staffed by city employees, would also be provided to give access to city services and ensure cohesion at the local level. This is not necessarily a new idea. It has been implemented in other cities, but it has attracted a lot of attention because it's an interesting complement to the very ambitious bicycle strategy that the mayor has already been developing. It would appear that the 15-minute city is an ideal urban response to the pandemic as it prioritises the mixing of city functions at a neighbourhood scale, which had effectively encouraged shorter trips, the stimulation of local economies and the building of community capital. How optimistic are you that this idea can be successfully realised in Paris? I believe that the 15-minute city is a very powerful message and as an urban project, it's a great strategy which ties together many interdependent themes such as sustainable travel, local resilience and community. However, there are a few issues that I can see. First, most residents in central Paris are actually quite wealthy and effectively already live in a 15-minute city. So how revolutionary is that, one can wonder. And more fundamentally, 15 minutes are not the same for everyone. And I think the academic in me would argue that this strategy is slightly class blind. First, when you work in class people, work in low qualified jobs and with low salaries, they are not able to afford living in Paris and they have to travel to Paris to service the global city strategy that the central metropolis is developing. The issue here is one of affordable housing, which is not at the core of the 15-minute strategy and appears very important given the violent gentrification underway in some working-class neighborhoods of Paris. It also appears possible to create a 15-minute city and densest city in Europe, but this dense city is the core of a very large metropolis. So how about the people who commute to support Paris' growing economy? However, while not framed in terms of gender, this strategy could offer interesting prospects for gender equity in transport. Transport research suggests that women tend to have much more complex trips than men, as when they leave the house, they typically make many more trips, such as taking kids to school, going grocery shopping, undertaking administrative tasks, in addition to working. 
this reflects a patriarchal sharing of tasks, which remains very much in place in many European cities. And the 50-minute city will make these complex trip chaining practices easier as the neighborhood would cater to a variety of functions. To meet the prospects for using this compact city strategy to support better sharing of household serving trips between men and women should be further explored as it's a very interesting aspect of this strategy. All in all, while I think it's a great political message, I am not sure the city I aspire to is a 15-minute city. I aspire to a more affordable city for everyone, even if that implies a 30-minute commute. If that commute is allowed by a nice cycling lane, maybe it would even be a, a very nice city living experience. And finally, if we now look ahead to 2024 and Paris is set to host the Olympic Games, which has traditionally been used by global cities as a stimulus to upgrade their infrastructure, regenerate city districts and showcase their culture and heritage. What sort of city do you think that the world will visit four years from now? And can the event be used to address some of the city's biggest inequalities? The bid was very much focused on regenerating some neighborhoods, especially in the suburbs. And the goal was to use Olympic funds to develop key equipments that these local authorities could not necessarily afford. It was thus quite a progressive and encouraging bid. I believe the greatest challenge in 2024 will be to move large numbers of people around. The Paris public transport system is old, it's saturated, and it's prone to failure and delay. By 2024, should the current mayor's strategy be pursued, I believe Paris will have turned into a great cycling city because so many efforts have been made. However, I am not sure cycling will answer the mobility needs of large numbers of visitors. Many visitors will not be used to cycling around a large city. They will lack the navigation skills that make cycling attractive and, and reassuring. Micromobility services, should they still exist by then, might provide an interesting complement uh, as they are offered in many cities globally. Some visitors might be used to using them and be happy to find them when they arrive in Paris. Finally, I wonder what the pandemic heritage will be. How will we deal with uh, large-scale events in the future? Will a certain social distancing have to be ensured? We'll probably learn from next year's Tokyo Olympics for the Paris edition. That's fantastic. Thank you, Marion, for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. So just a reminder that you can learn more about the great work which Marion and 6T are doing in Paris by checking out their website at 6-t.co or by following Marion on Twitter at M-A-R-I-O-N underscore L-G-D-C. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you did enjoy today's episode, Please do take the time to leave a comment, tell your friends, and of course, please do subscribe. So while this is the last of our Global City series, be sure to stay tuned for our new Streetside Talk series, which will be coming very soon.